Hey friends, welcome back to the Black Diamond Podcast. This is your host, Eric Malzone. And this is the show where I have the absolute pleasure of interviewing entrepreneurs, founders, change makers, and people who are just creatively leading the way through innovation. And it's not only about successes and, and great stories, because you'll definitely get those, but it's also about the personal challenges and the vulnerability that we face along the way. So this show is brought to you by Level 5 Mentors, helping entrepreneurs and founders achieve the highest levels of freedom in five different categories, time, money, relationships, health, and purpose. And if you want to find out how you're doing in those five categories, we got you covered. We got a survey for that. Just go to level5mentors.com forward slash survey, and you can take the free entrepreneurial survey and see how you're doing in each category and see where you have room for improvement because, hey, we can always be improving. So welcome to the show. Let's get on to it. All right. We're live. Hollis Carter, welcome. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. This is, uh, you know, first of all, I just want to give a couple of shout outs for, for getting uh, me connected with you. So Lisa Cloutier um, and Elliot Rowe, thanks for the recommendation. Uh, it's not easy to get Hollis on a podcast, uh, I'm finding. And uh, without them, I don't think we would have connected. So kudos to them. Yeah, uh, Hollis, great, great people. Yeah, great humans. Uh, so man, where do we start with a guy like you? Uh, you know, just talking previous, you know, to the recording here, it was like, well, if you're a real estate agent, uh, you ski over a hundred days a year. Um, you run the baby bathwater Institute, you build companies in matters of months and sell them. Um, like do I don't give us your background, give us your backstory. Cool. I want to hear it all. Great. I'd love to. First, I'm not a real estate agent. I've just done some real estate deals and I'm sure that'll come up in the story as we get into it, but that was a complete accident, something I didn't intend to get into, but I got into it for a passion reason and had to figure out a business way out of it. Um, But I guess the story would be more like literally just started when I was super young. Uh, I grew up in Georgia I have one younger brother, you know, kind of, you know, working class suburban neighborhood situation. We, when we moved into like this nicer neighborhood, I remember my dad being like, all these kids are going to get cars because people are more well to do where we just moved. We're not going to give you a car. You're going to have to get one. And so then that was like my first real motivator was just to be free and have like my own truck so I could go places. Um, but the biggest factor was really in third grade, I had a, uh, teacher, you know, tap me on the shoulder and be like, Hey, you only have to do the odd problems. And I was like, what? And she's like, well, you're dyslexic and this stuff. I'm like, I, like barely even like inform me about it. Then I got pulled in and was told that I was special. And I do have like crazy learning disabilities. I mix numbers and letters and um, pretty dyslexic, which is interesting. I've met lots of dyslexic entrepreneurs now, but in third grade, I felt like, Oh crap, I'm a stupid kid. Um, and my dad was pretty to both my parents were therapists, like pretty in tune to this. It basically was like, I don't think the traditional path is going to be your path, but, uh, you've got good street skills. Yada, yada. He actually bought me a lawnmower that Christmas and a Jay Abraham, uh, direct response booklet that had like letters written by roofing companies. And I remember typing, retyping those letters and, turning my lawnmower I got for Christmas into a business. And that was kind of the start. Um, and I really enjoyed that. I think I had 30 lawns on reoccurring billing. 
like almost immediately after after that when the spring came around. Um, it was really a start of realizing I just didn't fit into the system. But I was like always really driven and motivated, but school was like next to impossible for me. Like I couldn't memorize stuff. I was terrible at testing. Like this was way before anyone had a laptop or even really a computer at home. And I got a laptop because my handwriting and spelling was so bad. Um, and so that, that's really kind of where a lot of it started. And then I got addicted to creating my own confidence from doing these like little business ventures. Uh, and I do remember that being very, very formative for me. Um, and I did tons of stuff way before I could drive and, and on into that. And that, that was a big start of it. Um, so yeah, I think that's more like the origin story of getting into the kind of entrepreneurial thing. Um, but then going into essentially the internet stuff was, uh, I was like a whitewater rafting guy at the time and, you know, managing bands around town while I delivered flowers that I was growing and selling, like the, the king of a million little hustles that nothing really scaled, but it made me feel confident I was able to do well at it. So yeah, we read, we read this wild ad and it basically said like, make $100,000 from home, kind of crazy stuff you would see. And we were pretty bored. We we're like, let's, let's follow up with this guy. We went, literally it was like two hour drive on the other side of Atlanta. Um, this guy had like a trailer full of people. He had bought like every internet course known to man. He was actually a really good dude. He was ex-military, showed up on his crotch rocket. And we were like these two hippie kids who had come down and, he was like, yeah, I just bought all these courses at these seminars. He'd gone to like every how to make money on the internet seminar. And one of the courses had this cut and paste ad that he had pasted for us to come do sales of some program that was probably some pyramid thing or whatever. Um, I wasn't making sales of it. We we're like, hey, we'll try. We read the script. The script didn't work. I kind of made up my own version of the script and, and sold something that day on the phone. He was like, whoa, we haven't had that happen yet. We ended up doing lots of little things with him. This was er, this was probably 2005, six time when people were still scared, like to put their, you know, credit card in on the internet. Um, and I mean, long story short, because he had access to so many courses, this guy just spent all of his money on all these courses. He was very smart. He was executing all of them. Um, we ended up slowly becoming partners with him and doing a bunch of internet marketing stuff. Um, I was managing email lists for him. I was helping him produce conferences with all these big name guru folks um, that I got to kind of start with a really high level education in that space. Um, and our first really big success was uh, honestly with that video sales letter stuff. We had sent this email out to a pretty large audience and it had a 45 minute video in it that I couldn't get myself to watch um, of one of the, the trainers that we were promoting. And you had to listen to the whole thing to the finish to find out where to go to buy it. We were getting commissions left and right. Wow, this is amazing. Let's figure this out. And uh, so we kind of reverse engineered that and started making video sales letters for affiliate products. And I mean, we were just hustling, hustling like crazy. Um, but we were businessmen. Like we didn't know how to do taxes and hire people and do leadership and management. Um, that was really just us learning the art of the hustle um, and getting comfortable with marketing and copywriting and 
learning all this lingo um, that we kind of need to learn to do it. And mostly we learned most of it in lobbies at conferences because the stuff that you'd find online or in books was so outdated because things were moving so fast. Um, and then it, there's a whole bunch of stuff that came after that. I could, the story could take up a long time. Uh, so let me know where you want to go. Because we ended up starting a, a social network for Montessori schools after this. Wow. Uh, we ended up cloning, you know, the one business we sold was really fun. Still me and my roommate from college, just business partners and everything. Um, we basically took when Groupon came out, it was this big hit. We hired software programmers in India based off like pictures of this we drew and it was our first time like spending more money and bootstrapping something that required some investment up front but we created a SaaS software platform for small business owners in local towns or in little niche markets create their own daily deal sites um, and this was cool because we got to use all the stuff we learned working with the guy who was selling info products and doing all that more various basic internet marketing stuff that was very valuable and very lucrative. Um, just something we actually like started from scratch out of our own heads that we thought was valuable. And, um, you know, people could pick the like the town of Charleston, South Carolina and say, I want to have a daily deal site there. They could claim that. And then without any tech skills, they could build and run daily deal sites. And we had, you know, a continuity program that had trainings. We could teach people how to go into, you know, a massage place and you know, do a deal or a car wash or whatever. Um, we built that up pretty large, uh, lots of clients all using very direct response stuff and uh, ended up flipping that and that's how I moved to Colorado. And uh, then that's when I stopped working with that business partner um, for, for another reason that we had a great run and I wanted to move to the mountains and uh, we were both living in Georgia and it was time to, for me to go into like the next chapter and that's when I got addicted to skiing. That was like the North star of my life for, man, like a decade still, still is, but it's changed a bit. Uh, but I pretty much made every decision around skiing after I had figured out how to make enough income and stability and like confidence to actually like <laughs> go do that and not be like guiding and trading things and like, you know, living on couches and stuff. Right. Um, so yeah, I mean, that, that kind of takes us to a, a fun place of the origin, I guess, um, trying to downsize it, but very sporadic. I'm like pretty ADD dude, um, to so a little bit whimsical and sporadic sometimes. Yeah. I, uh, you know, I want to pick on something that you mentioned there too. And, you know, you had said back when you were younger in the schools and dyslexic learning abilities, uh, uh, learning challenges, you didn't fit into the system. Do you, looking back on that with the eyes that you have now, was that in some way a strange benefit or advantage to you in this life or how, how would you classify that? Yeah. I mean, now that I have the, the privilege of the benefit, like the benefit of the privilege, however we want to put it to like, look back and see that and be in a different place. I actually very much see it that whether I reframed it that way for my own benefit because um, when I was a kid, it was didn't feel that way. Like when you hear the news sure. that you're special or whatever, didn't feel that way. It took a while. Um, but now I've done a lot of interesting personal work. I go on like Vipassana retreats and keep a therapist regularly and do a lot of work with psychedelics and stuff like that. And it's nice to reflect on it. But when you're in the heat of it, man, it, it doesn't feel like that. Um, but once you have something that gives you confidence, and I do remember my teachers, especially ones that were teaching anything business wise or whatever, trying to 
tell me I was doing things wrong. I knew that like the playbook was outdated <laughs> and not that I actually think now that money is a, a good measure of value. It's just a me- one of the measurement tools of value. But when you're like a teenager and you know, you're making more than your teacher who's telling you stuff, it gives you some confidence. Um, <laughs> right. And that was like super helpful um, for the same system that kind of told you you was dumb. Uh, like to be able to flip that was, was really nice. Um, so yeah, I think it was more that flipping it into something that gave me confidence that I could do something on my own. And I didn't need it. was great. So I was like, like my brother, amazing student. He was in AP classes. Like he was built to be in that system and do very well. I was just like, not like I missed the maximum days of school every year. Um, cause I wanted to be out, you know, playing outside or doing something. Like we had an ice storm in Georgia and I found out the government was picking up trash piles on the street and I could charge $300 for that because people didn't know how to file the paperwork. I skipped school for like two weeks straight and just cut down shrubs and stack piles of lumber in their yards. And, and, and my dad was like, cool with me doing that. Um, so I was kind of in my zone there. Um, so yeah, yeah. I guess to say it was in the heat of it, it didn't feel great. But looking back on it now, I love having the privilege of like the reframe. And I think that's a good time. Anytime you run into like the peaks and valleys of doing your own thing and, you know, shouldering the burden of anything and not just having that safe, safe, secure system that a lot of people have is like, there's always that privilege of reframe when you make it out of whatever the heat of that tumble is. Yeah. That's well said, man. So I want to get into, so the baby bathwater Institute, um, I feel like I hear about it organically every three to six months for a period of four years now. Um, and you know, the name alone is a conversation, uh, what it is, right. Is it, you know, is it a networking event and I, you know, all the stuff off your website or no, not really. Is it like in a, and what, what is, okay. How did it start? Where did you come up with a name and what is the baby bathwater Institute? All good questions that are generally changing answers. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, the one, it's, it's funny, language is so important, right? How you describe things. And that's why on the site, it's never really what it is now. It's like some word salad that we came up with that was good enough. Um, but my partner, Michael, and I stick to the, the policy or you know, system revision or whatever for this, that it's a revisionist vision versus like, a vision so we don't we never sat down and wrote a business plan of we're going to make a bunch of money with a mastermind and here's the benefits of that it was we both moved to the same town here in colorado we both just sold some businesses or moved out of day to day them and we're literally just going out to like dinner and drinks together all the time and you know the first thing we really did is create an LLC on our phone on legal zoom at the bar so that we could share credit cards. So we could stop splitting tabs. That was to be the perfect, like really honest, uh, brutal truth. Best origin stories I've ever heard. <laughs> uh, it was like, Hey, we're going to dinner and just talking about business stuff. This sounds like a business. Uh, we are just brainstorming wild ideas. And honestly, it's one of me and Michael's, best things but also worst things our team hates it like we just love coming up with crazy schemes that are usually like way off the beaten path um and michael's like uniquely skilled at figuring out like seeing how they're going to work when they're just super weird um so anyway we create that company um 
there was a conference happening here and they asked us if we could help them get some speakers because they knew that we knew a lot of people in that world. Because um, Michael and I never were actually business partners up until the point we just got this account together to, to buy food and drinks with together. Um, but we had worked together in the sense that we went to probably a decade's worth of conferences multiple times a month together. We liked the same people. We didn't like the same people. We almost operated in the same way at these conferences is how we bonded. And, you know, I'm 36 now, he's 52. So we had an age gap, but he felt we were the same age entrepreneurially. We started at similar times and we just operated the same way, but we almost never went into the content rooms. We always hung out in the lobbies and tried to find the more down to earth people. We were kind of repulsed by the like guru, uh, kind of God's gift to the earth just because I sold a bunch of eBooks or like I've made some money on the internet or I've started a business of some kind. Like I think nurses and firemen and policemen are probably more valuable than entrepreneur people, but it's just different people with different ways of doing things. And so we did like that crowd that was a little self-deprecating and funny. And we'd end up buying tickets to these conferences and never go in the room and sit in the lobby from like noon till 4 a.m. all the time. Um, and so yeah, this conference came to Colorado. We helped invite some speakers and some people to come. And then the conference, we just really didn't like it. It fell off for us. You could tell they were just filming everything to sell some DVDs or whatever. Um, so we rented two school buses. We turned them into bars and then a little cabin up in the mountains. And we just invited all our friends who would come to that show and said, let's, let's not waste the time that we're all here in town, sitting in this room, listening to talks we don't want to hear. Let's spend time together. We put a band together and got some food and we just each put in like 10 grand, I think, and said, screw it, let's just do this. There was no plan to launch very bathwater from it, but that was the name of the business we picked because we used that analogy, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater was like a common phrase between us all the time. Mm. And we were like, oh, it'd be great. We'll have this company together. If we get a consulting gig or something, someone will have to write a check to Baby Bathler. It'll be funny. Um, and that's like more of the honest origin. It has taken on. The name worked out really great because it was a like philosophical belief between the two of us that there's always baby and there's always Bathler no matter what you do. Like, there's just no getting around it. So like a dualistic point of view or whatever. Um, but it's funny since COVID hit, I've had Google alerts for baby bathwater on and it's, it's pretty random that things come up about us or it's used in a news article. COVID's like the number one thing that people started using that phrase in every news article. Like, this guy is throwing the baby out with the bathwater. So now it's like, it's, it's almost COVID to put that phrase more front of mind, which has been really cool. It's, it's really attractive to me. I mean, I'm just, maybe I'm placing an analogy where it doesn't belong, but I look at like <clears throat> the typical conference, right? Cause I'm, <clears throat> I've been to a lot of fitness conferences where I'll listen to speakers or people I've admired coaches that I've known for a long time and read about and read their stuff. And I always found that the best part of those was the happy hour after, right? Yeah. That's when everyone was themselves. It's when you actually got to be up close to people, talk to them, find out where they're from you know, sure. There's some social lubrication through alcohol that helps. Um, but it was always the best. And I look at it like those conferences, like the whole thing's the bathwater, but the baby is like, is the, that, whatever that. Yeah. Is. I mean, you're, you're, you're nailing how we started using that phrase and now we've just, you know, buttered the bread of everything with it. But, um, 
it was we go and I, he's like how was it and i was like ah there was some baby but it was mostly bathwater." and <laughs> and that was like it became so commonplace for us as like just friends who were drinking buddies at these conferences that uh we would do it and it was like bad like i was always pissed because like i lived at that time in breckenridge and i was doing all these conferences and i, I could eat good food i could go outside uh and, and do fun things like i'm leaving to go work on my business there's all these great people i'm usually going to some like marriott in some city i'm to uber around i'm usually eating like cisco food out of chafing dishes I'm under fluorescent lights all day. And then the guys who's teaching me stuff that I could watch on YouTube, try to sell me something at the end. And it's like, go through sponsor booths to get there. But it was still, the baby was still worth the bathwater of all that, especially when I was like building my businesses and my network and learning. And I learned it all like the, my comfortable level sitting in a lobby of any hotel and just drinking and talking with rad other entrepreneurs, probably the most comfortable place I know. Um, cause that was my training ground. Cause I didn't do good learning through books and courses. So my like learning disability or strength or whatever you want to spin it into, but man, can I listen to someone's story and hear them tell like what sucked about this and what was real about it. And I feel like when you're having those conversations, you get a better thing. If you get good at learning how to ask questions and actually be interested in other people's stories. Yeah. And I think that's where me and Michael were aligned. And like I said, we did set out a business plan to start a mastermind, but we were part of probably like 10 masterminds, went to tons of conferences. And so we did this like off the cuff one and people were like, that was great. We'd love you to do that again. They're like, oh, well, okay, maybe or whatever. Um, and then I invested in a ski resort in Utah and I was like, man, this is an amazing blank campus. It was set up like perfect to do the event without all the bathwater stuff that we viewed. We were able to do it on a mountain. People could get out and ski or hike, depending on what time of year it was. We had it on a lake in the summer. I had this amazing chef. We were pulling the food from the gardens. And we didn't ever pay speakers or have gurus. Everyone who came was on panels and things like that. And the whole thing was a giant happy hour. You could have a Bloody Mary right when you got there, or you could go to the CrossFit class. Um, <laughs> and we would let people stay up. Oh, and we have the music going till three or four in the morning morning because I just was like there's four days with these people together the most valuable thing is that we're all in one space we always joke we could probably pull it off just as good with great people at the La Quinta in Iowa um, and we just needed some good food so we don't all fall into that trap where you get tired and all that um, so yeah I mean I, I think you nailed it that the value is always this thing and it seems like that industry hasn't reinvented itself in a long time because there's this like playbook that just works. You have your big conferences, you have your trade shows, you have your masterminds, you have your like niche conferences with keynotes and talks and happy hours and a DJ and a cash bar at the end. And they get some discount codes for some room blocks. Um, you know, as I'm going on this rant, that feels like you're about it. Uh, the other thing I really could really despise, especially being like 19 or so when I first got pretty embedded in the networking conference space was like the hierarchy and status games that are like built into how they're structured hmm. where you've got like the little badges with the stupid little lanyards hanging off where everyone's like, oh, I'm a sponsor, I'm a speaker, I'm a whatever. And like, oh, I could never go to the speaker dinner, but I was like real slick. Like I was getting myself into the speaker dinner. That was like a game for me. So and there's always the guy who got the nice room and then he'd host people in his room. Um, and it was funny. That was one of my first big lessons was like, 
get in a nice room and be the guy with some weed at the conference. Those old guys like to cut loose when they're away from their work. And like, they don't, I meet great people um, that way. It was really funny. Um, so let me ask you this. Uh, when you, uh, what, what can people, if people, first of all, how, how do you gain entrance into a baby bathwater event? And then what, what are the expectations once? Someone yeah. Goes? Yeah. Great. So just to wrap up, I guess, on the hierarchy piece, because it applies to that is that our thing is like everyone is equal in peers. There's almost like a little bit of a socialist <laughs> feel to it uh, where like everyone, we take care of everyone's housing, everyone's food. No one can pay for drinks. No one can get a bigger suite and host a special party. Uh, everyone's like kind of equal and we don't like pay speakers and have them promote it and do that. So like everyone's there is participating in content as much as they're, sitting and listening and all that stuff. So I, I really think that is a valuable part because no matter where someone is in the food chain or status game is someone who is, is here is going to have value in some kind. Everyone's got something to learn. Everybody knows what they don't know. And, and that's really important. So I guess for what to be expected and then how people figure it out, honestly, we've done very, very, very little marketing. Um, when we did our first international event, we did some because we wanted to add some international folks. So we did some Facebook ads there. But I'd say it's been 99% referral based. Um, so, you know, we've just kind of grown organically, maybe 10, 25% per year. We've had like 97% retention. So we're very comfortable with that because we really do want to know our members. And like I told you in the chat we had before, it's not a great business model if you're looking for a model that's not time intensive and scales really well. Um, ours is not the one to go by, but if you like this stuff, it's good. Um, so, you know, most people apply, but, uh, like on the website, the ones who apply on the website, it's like a 50, 50 shot. That's a good fit. Cause it depends on their like intentions, why they're getting there. Then we do some research on them and we set up a phone interview. Um, but I'd say most people do come through a referral of someone who's been to one and almost every time that's a good fit because the person referred them kind of had an idea. Um, I even had a chat with a member last night I went to dinner with. He's like, I want to refer some friends, but I kind of like it to be my own special place. So sorry, I'm not doing it. Uh, it's like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a good sign too. You know, it's, uh, yeah. I have a question for you because, you know, it seems like you've developed this thing, this baby bathwater. Just, it's just from everything I've heard so far, Hollis, it, it suits you and your character and your personality and what you enjoy to do to a T. And you've seemed to have made a way to, and you don't mind working. That's obvious, right? Like you work. Yeah. Um, and you just, you built this thing that's just so much about what your strengths are and what you love. If you hadn't had success prior with your businesses and maybe made some money, put it in your pocket, mm -hmm. right? Do you think you would have taken the, the risk of doing something like this that was a little out, not a little, it's kind of pretty far outside of a normal gig, right? Um, do you think you would have taken that risk or would have you gone with a safer route that was more, uh, you know, tailored to making specifically making money? Does that great. make sense? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and actually I think I've always been, I think, you know, I, I alluded to this when we were talking earlier, I actually love making kind of wild decisions and making them work. Um, there's like, everyone has the reasons that drive them. Like some people want to get fit to look good. People have money because they need security. Like I've never had a, a issue with risk tolerance and I like seeing crazy things come to life. So I think I would have, but I don't think it would have worked. Um, 
And I, I say this because I've heard a lot of content and even guys who teach how to start like a mastermind group or a conference as a way to make money. If we didn't actually know the difference between conferences and trade shows and masterminds and have attended and been like a user and a, a generator and been involved in those on such a deep level, I don't think we would have had the understanding we need to do something that's different because it's just so many minute details to curating the community and having the right balance of skills and industries and, and all the little things you learn by being in the, in the grind of having other businesses that need these type of events. Um, also, to your point, you have to have some bandwidth and runway to do it right. Like if you have to make running right out of the gate, if you don't have your like Maslow's hierarchy of entrepreneurial needs covered, you're going to screw it up because you're going to cut corners. You're going to sell tickets to people you shouldn't. You're going to not decide to like, I would say we lost money on this thing for like three years straight to get it to the right spot. Um, and that was something we had the privilege because, you know, I still, because I did so much of that internet marketing stuff, like have passive income that I could rely on from random affiliate links all over the internet and books and different stuff I had done. And Michael had the same thing. We had to rely on it out of the gate and like, we'd have to raise money. We'd have to do all kinds of stuff. And then we would have had to make a vision to stick to for investors. And then it wouldn't have worked either because we had, we, we like review film and change the plan every quarter. Um, and so I think you, you nailed something as far as like, I probably would have done it for fun to see if I could do it, but I would have failed um, mm -hmm. without the knowledge, having spent like a decade in these things and not having the runway to like lose some money along the way, because we just viewed it as we were just paying the price of admission to go to the conferences we wanted to go to. Um, but then all of a sudden, Oh man, now we got two employees. Now it was real. <laughs> and like, you know, the, it, it was weird. It kind of like happened to us versus us doing it. Like I remember Michael being out when I'm like, Oh shit, I think like we're going to be doing this for a while. And if we're not, we need to like make a decision because it's, it's building momentum. We, we, have, we have like an office now. We have people and like, this is bigger than us now. We need to, to make a call. If we're just going to still be these, these like kind of crazy guys. Are we going to really do it? And we were both like, man, I love this. Time goes by fast. It's clearly not something we could scale and sell, but that's okay. Um, we actually really like it. Yeah. It's, it's interesting to me. I hear stories like this, like Joe Rogan, uh, you know, he's still alive, but uh, if he wasn't, he'd be one of those people who sat at my dinner table, right? If you like, mm -hmm. people ask you that question. Um, mm -hmm. And he talks about like, he's got the most successful podcast on the planet. And, you know, he, he does say quite often, like if he didn't make as much money as he did during Fear Factor as a show, right? That he probably ne wouldn't have a successful podcast because he would have done things differently. He wouldn't have done, you know, the creative route where he didn't just, just didn't give a shit, right? If people were listening or not, he just kind of did what he wanted. He talked to interesting people and, you know, 1500 episodes later, he's got this behemoth and I kind of see it the same. It's like, you almost have to have some success and maybe something that you didn't really, wasn't your passion early on, right? Um, like internet marketing, I'm sure you're very good at it, but it doesn't sound like you're necessarily super passionate about it. Um, I hated it, yeah. Yeah. Well, you made money and provided the next step so you could have, you could be creative in whatever you do next to kind of do it your own way. And that's such an interesting thing. And I think it's something that I don't know how to tag that for entrepreneurs, but it's like everything you're doing, maybe you have, maybe you're listening to this, you have a job that you hate. Well, put away money, 
right? Or look for that next phase of when you can start a business or do something because you may be hating something now, but that may be the thing that allows for creativity and the passion that you have later. And passion is, is used so often. I try not to use it that often, but it's, it's just representative of this case. Um, yeah. I mean, I think passion, authenticity, it's, it's funny. All the marketers ruin all the good words. Don't they? Um, marketers yeah, ruin everything. They do. Um, <laughs> but it, it, I think I, I think I always come to things from like more of a mental health side of things, almost more than like an accountant tactical side, mm-hmm. but it is um, if you've already made it, and you're teaching people or trying to mentor people or help people with stuff like you've got to take into account that you have the privilege of doing things in a way. Like I do hear misguided entrepreneurial advice all the time where it's like, just stack up and do it, take the risk, jump in or like follow your passion or whatever. Um, and it's like, no, it's like, actually, uh, there are ways you have to get into this. Like, and you know, like I did the internet marketing thing because I, it was a whole like set of phase changes of mental perspectives where, you know, I got into whitewater guiding because I like whitewater rafting, but then I realized, Oh crap, this isn't fun anymore because it's work. So I went to like my internet so I could go do that on my free time. Yes. And then when that happened and that switched and there was multiple like switches. So if you've already made it and you're giving people advice, like give people some grace and actually step back a little further and get off the horse that you're, all successful and remember what it takes and uh, i feel like if people got the right advice from people who are a little further along with a little more remembrance of where they were than where they are it would actually help people a lot um and the same if you're coming up like know that you can hear i think the internet's deadly and all these books and personal development stuff that's out there because it's it's framed to sell and sound sexy and perfect but it's not quite that easy and like everyone deserves a little more time and grace to screw up. And unless you have the freedom to burn some money, like if Michael and I 10 years before that said, Hey, let's each put in $10,000 to a party that doesn't even have a plan. <laughs> like then we would have like slapped ourselves. Um, but we both just had like an exit and we knew because we had built psychological like loops have closed of, Oh, when I do this thing, good things happen after, but you have to, like get comfortable with those risks and those things. Like a great one, the event model, when we started that terrible business model, you to put these huge deposits down, people bail, people change, you have insurance issues, like stuff doesn't show up and people don't sign up too late, especially entrepreneurs. Um, now that I've done it for eight years, I know that if I don't get it sold out ahead of time, that's okay because it's going to be oversold no matter what every time. Because the last 10 days, half of the people who want to come actually commit because they're like living closer to their calendar than that far out. And it's like, it's, I get to tell people, no, I've never had an event where I haven't get to tell people it's sold out. But for the first three years, I was stressed it wasn't going to sell out every single time. And so I got to learn that loop and that behavior and get comfortable with that, you know, working out that way. Yeah, it's fascinating, man. What do you, out of curiosity, when you hear people give the advice, burn your boats, go all in? What, what's your, I mean, I know it's circumstantial. Everyone has their own case, right? You have to look at whatever context it is around your situation, but generally, how does that make you feel? Yeah. I mean, I think I would go back to that uh, one, like your hierarchy of needs and do other people rely on you? So mm-hmm. I did that a lot when I was, when I knew I could live in my van 
No one depended on me. I was like a solo entrepreneur with a few like contract people I worked with on the internet. And I would, I would go all in. I, I mean, I've got some stupid all in stories that would make my parents sweat. Like, <laughs> um, but I would never do that right now. Um, I now have like a team that's like a family. I just got married. We're about to like go into family life and all these things. So it's a different thing. Um, but man, I'm addicted. I'm addicted to that feeling. Uh, I do love doing that. I think some people they don't love that. Um, my problem is I actually really like it, and my partner does too. Uh, so we like going it because that pressure drives us to succeed. Um, but as we built families, we're going to have more people who rely on us. We do it with a safety net in place, um, which we had the privilege of building over time. So I guess it's, you know, take a good assessment of where you are and what happens if that whole thing burns and your idea doesn't work out. Can you handle that situation? And if the answer is yes, do it. Um, you probably have more success because of the pressure. But if you can't handle the outcome, then definitely don't do it. And I don't think people are honest about looking at that sometimes. Um, because it's pretty important to know like where things are going to go and, and how it's going to happen. And you have to be very good at knowing your risk tolerance and when, when things get hairy, is it going to cause you to freeze up or is that going to be the pressure you need to stop procrastinating? Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting, man. I, I talked to, you know, a lot of business people, entrepreneurs from a lot of different industries, but there always seems to be a, a commonality that <clears throat> how people make decisions um, it seems to be in one, depending on you word it, but it's always kind of the same point is it's always, well, what's the worst thing that can happen, right? When I'm going to start this thing right now, yeah. never. And then however you ask yourself, you have to boil it down to that and you have to take a look at like, can I handle it? And, you know, similar to you, I'm, you know, my, it's just my wife and my dog and I, uh, no kids. So, you know, our, our, we can have a little bit more risk in our lives and, at the end of the day, like the worst thing that can happen for us is we live out of our van. I'm like, shit, that's not even that bad. That sounds kind of good. Right? <laughs> yeah. So it allows for more risk, but I think people have to ask themselves, you know, starting with that question, right. You know, what is the worst thing that can happen and how do I feel about that? And uh, if you can't answer that yet, then you really got to dig into it some more. Yeah. I mean, that actually, uh, a good real life example from baby Baffler is, one thing I could not stand literally gave me the chills to my soul. And I made money doing it at the beginning is the back of the room pitches that mm -hmm. happen at events when people give this great talk and you do all the NLP and hoorah tricks. And then you send them to the back of the room for some offer they'll never be able to get unless they do it now. Um, and like when we were working in that industry as like teenagers, we are splitting the take at the back of the room with these group of people who I didn't know. I just like found them on YouTube or whatever and booked them into a, the hotel Villa Quinta in the Atlanta airport. And like, oh, man, there's something wrong with this. When we now do our events, we don't want people to pitch each other. So we hold ourselves to the same standard. Like we take zero referral fees, zero commissions off anything. If someone has a product they want our group to have, we'll say, well, what's the affiliate commission? Take that off as a discount and hand it to them. Right. Um, you won't get involved in that. But even more importantly at the event, at this last event, I had multiple people because our model is like come to one event, do that as a double date, make sure it feels good to you. And if you like it, ask us about membership and then we get involved. At most events, like you come in on the last day, there's this credit card form sitting on the chair. There's some well thought out pitch. Um, we had people coming up to us at this last event asking, like, nope, Matt, till you get home, 
you sober up, you get back to reality, you talk to your wife, you talk to your accountant, and you make sure this is the decision you want because it, we'd rather get the customer who it's the right fit and it's going to be good for them than deal with like, oh, I made this decision and like, I've seen that. It just doesn't work out in the long run. Yeah, that's great, man. I love to hear it. And it's, uh, you know, too, when it comes to like my business coaching career, you know, I only handle a certain amount because I like to, you know, I'm consider myself similar to you, a multi-potentialite. I like to have a lot of different things going on. Um, but I always encourage people, you know, even if they're like, yeah, this is it. I was referred and, you know, I want to work with you. I'm like, well, maybe, you know, here's the price. I want you to sleep on it for at least 36 hours. And then yeah. let's talk on next day because you, the last thing you want to do is get a refund because that just feels terrible, right? Um, but you also want people to cycle through a couple of days of emotion to figure out what they're doing. I exactly. love that. Yeah, especially for these live events. Like people think, yeah. we, we've even talked about that for people who want to work together and they meet there. I'm like, guys, you think everything's possible because we're on an island in Croatia and you've got food around every corner and drinks and talks and like, we're in Never Never Land. This is not sustainable. <laughs> um, and it feels really good for four days, but don't make lifelong decisions or even medium-length decisions here in this environment. Just marinate on it, you know, and follow up after. Um, and I think that, that goes back to the conversation we were having earlier is – the short-term gains are never worth the long-term output. Uh, like you chase these transactional deals too close, but when you're starting to hustle and you're in the middle of it, like you want to close every deal, you want it done because yeah. there's that urgency there. And so I think it's something that comes over time and you learn. Um, it's a great book. When I was in the short-term hustle, uh, this guy recommended it to me. He was, funny. He was actually like Tony Robbins security guard. Um, and we were just sitting in the lobby at some conference He's like, you should read The Narrow Road. And now I've gifted that book like a thousand times. <laughs> um, the Narrow Road by Felix Dennis. Um, I like his approach to it. And I, I don't read many of those business books. And, but I, I liked his like reality piece to it. It helped me with not doing the short-term stuff a lot. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll get it today. Um, you know, one more thing because I want to ask you about because uh, we're both skiers. And uh, it's Powder Mountain. That's the yeah. one that you're invested in. Tell us why it's different. Oh, I mean, it's true. That's a long story. Uh, but <laughs> do, it in, do it in four minutes. But from a ski perspective, I mean, there's no question. It's the largest skiable acreage in the United States, and we limit it to 1,500 people a day. So four times the size of Vail with <laughs> not 20,000 people. Um, it's just it doesn't feel like Disneyland, like the Vail Resorts and those kind of places. It's mm -hmm. actually just a down-to-earth, super cool spot. You nice. know, I... I came for the skiing, like the people. We actually built a house there. Um, it's funny how the world changes. I was like, I'll do anything to just live skiing 24 seven. I actually just sold that house because now I'm, I'd rather be on the lake. So we just mm -hmm. sold that and moved to the lake. And I'm like, and I have five friends who have houses there. I'm like, let's stay with them. Um, Cause I can do the skiing for four months a year, but I can be on the lake for six. Um, and just playing the, playing the numbers game there. Um, but it's just unique. And I like that it's blue collar. It's down to earth. And it feels like you're outside and not in like a theme park. And does, is it a refresh my memory? It has chairlifts, but limited amount, or it's got more backcountry, a side country access? Yeah, yeah. I mean, if, if it was run by Interwest or Vail or whatever, you'd have God knows how many chairlifts all over it. Yeah. Uh, it has a limited amount, 
but they do help you navigate the entire mountain. But once you know how to pick and poke your way around, they're exactly what you need. Um, those lifts are supported by, we have a bus that's my favorite part that picks up on the side country where it's like this great gully that's just, you take a chair up and you kind of do a side country route and the bus picks you up. Um, and then there's a handful of cats that also support it. So it's like perfectly put together with a minimal amount of infrastructure so that, well, you can ski paddle for seven days after a storm. Wow. Where I lived in Breck for my, for four years and we had 45 minutes. Yeah. 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 The, uh, the, the powder piranhas, right? Yeah. It's, uh, it's, I mean, one of the things I love about where we are here in Whitefish is that the mountain here still has a very community feel, right? Mm -hmm. It's, 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 it's very authentic. Now what's going to happen with a new huge influx of people, um, you know, that came in this year and we'll see, maybe it'll change, but I, I, I think a lot of people are, are craving in the ski community, something like, like what you've created powder mountain. I'm excited to get there. I haven't been there yet, but yeah, man. Um, gosh, this is, uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed this. I really, I really love the way that you approach business and the way you're doing with, with baby bathwater. Um, I've heard nothing but great things, man. I can tell you're just a, a really fun dude to hang out with. So. Um, yeah. I mean, I think, I think you nailed it where if you do something like you were saying, you know, work-life balance, all those things, like this thing is just a giant expression of the, the things we wish existed. Like I actually have such the opposite of, I, I want this blue ocean. If someone else wants to do something like what we did, I will help them. I want to go attend what we put on as an attendee, not a producer so bad. Um, like I'd be the best attendee of my event. I'd be like, I'd be winning an award for having fun of being there, but I'm kind of like still doing work stuff. Like the first four, I actually fainted standing up from being so social doing the parties at night, doing the activities during the day, running the content, running the food and beverage program. And like we do everything in places that you don't normally do events. And so it's like 10 times the work, but I like, that's one of the parts I love the most. Um, like in Croatia, in the middle of the event, no one knew this, but our entire food and beverage team quit working for the island that we had rented it from. And I had to like go hire them in cash to finish the job. And one of them got rowdy. I had to tie him up and lock him in a rental car because he was going to be disruptive. And like all this happened and no one knew. Uh, and for some reason, I like loved it. It made our team tighter together. Like it was a whole bunch of fun. Um, so I kind of like that. I had a big musical festival scene in college that I enjoyed. And I felt like it was good training. And uh, to be on the other side, super fun. Um, yeah. I mean, I think it'd be great if more folks did some stuff that's illogical because it makes sense to them. Cause if you stick to it, it doesn't end up working out. Um, so there's more people like you have similar interests. And yeah. I, I think that there's a ton of room to build communities like this in different interests. Like ours is not right for everyone. So someone should build ones for the people they're right for. And I think that would be really great. Yeah. Right on, man. Well, I, I appreciate all the work you've done. I think it's fantastic. And, uh, yeah, man, thank you so much for spending some time with me. And I know you're a busy guy and it's uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah. Awesome. Same here. And hopefully we can uh, meet up on a mountain sometime or get you to one of the events and we'd love to, to connect in person. Yeah. I don't think that'll be hard to do right on <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, Hollis Carter. Thanks, man. Hey everybody, this is your host, Eric Malzone. Don't leave yet. I have a few more requests for you. So if you got value out of this podcast, I ask you to do a few things. Number one, go to wherever you're listening, whether that be Apple Podcasts, 
Overcast, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and go ahead and subscribe to the show. Number two, while you're there, if you feel that we earned it, please leave us a nice review. Number three, share it. Whether it be social media, email, texting, whatever it may be, I'm sure you know somebody who would get value out of this episode just like you did. So please go ahead and share it. And that's how we get the word out. So it's really valuable and super appreciative. It only takes a minute of your time. Next, if you know of somebody, including yourself, who would be a great guest for the show, please head on over to level5mentors.com, L-E-V-E-L, the number five, mentors.com. Get in touch with me. Let me know what you're thinking. Uh, Make an introduction, whatever it may be. You can also get me directly in my email, which is eric, E-R-I-C, at level5mentors.com. Lastly, if you just want to chat, you want to find out more, if you want to expand on some ideas, I love hearing from the audience. So go ahead and hit me up on social media. I'm on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram. You also have my email already. So I love to hear from you. I'm always looking for ways to improve the show and I'm always looking to have great conversations. So don't hesitate to reach out. And once again, thank you for listening to the Black Diamond Podcast and you can expect a lot more from us.